So this morning's event is very special event, and it's Refugee Tales. So you will all have found one of these in your seat. You'll hear a bit more about that later. So I want to just briefly, first of all, thank our sponsors, the Arts Council of England. Yay! Where would we be without them? And um, then I'm just going to say a little bit about our three um, readers this morning. Well, two readers and one introducer of the pro- Is that a word? In such a literary audience? So I'm going to just say, first of all, we have uh, Jackie Kay, we have Patrick Gale, and the co-founder and co-coordinator of this initiative, Anna Pincus. Yeah. So thank you all for, thank you to the three of you for coming. So Jackie is very well known. She was read here last night, and I can see some faces that I know that were also here last night. And um, Jackie's the Scottish Macca. I love saying that. She's also Chancellor of the University of Salford. And, uh, well, she's very prolific and versatile, as I said last night. She's a poet, she's a novelist, she's a writer of short stories, and she's someone who grips us by the heart and the throat. Yeah. So I'm not going to say any more about because we went plenty of time to hear, the pro- hear the, about the initiative. Patrick is a novelist. He studied at Winchester and then read English at New College, Oxford. He lives in Cornwall with his husband, who's a sculptor and farmer. His novels include a very long list, and some of them very, very well known. Little Bits of Baby, which is quite, uh, was written quite a long time ago, but I read it again quite recently, and it still holds, it's still such a, a moving read. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And last year, he, his um, Man in an Orange Suit was screened by BBC Two as part of the Gay Britannia season. And it also included a documentary, All Families Have Secrets, which I remember watching, actually, and feeling, again, very touched by. He's currently working on a feature film adaptation of a Rose Tremaine short story and television adaptations of one of his own novels and an early 20th century classic, dot, dot, dot. Watch this space. Yeah. Just going back to Jackie, just to say that recently two of her books, Red, Rust, Red Dust Road autobiographical book and trumpet were became picador classics and last night somebody said at the in the q and a to to jackie you're not political political but you are political <laughs> which was a reference to something that she'd mentioned about her mum earlier and um i was thinking that like so many people for jackie and i think patrick both of you the personal is political and there is really not a huge difference between what you share of yourselves and what you share of your beliefs and your cares about society. Anna was, as I say, co-founder and co-coordinator of this initiative. This is such an exciting initiative where poets and novelists retell the stories of asylum seekers. So very, very sort of exciting project. And I'm not going to say any more about it because Anna's going to come up now and she's going to give us a little bit of the background and context of what you'll hear this morning. So sit back and enjoy yourselves. Hello, everyone. 
So it's a real honour to be here with Jackie and, and with Patrick. And Refugee Tales is unique because it's rooted in the work of a charity. So I just want to set a little of the context, but I'll be really brief because I know you've really come to hear the beautiful tales. This place is amazing, actually. I've never been to Ledbury before, and it seems so, so peaceful. And it's hard when you're walking around a place like this to keep in mind that these are times when we have to be really vigilant and then to decide what we do about the things that we observe through that vigilance. So right now, we're sitting here today in this lovely setting, but children are being detained in Trump's America, incarcerated in cages. Last week, lawyers in Hungary were told that it was illegal for them to give migrants um, legal advice. And on our shores, we don't have to look that far, on our shores, 3,000 people are today being detained indefinitely in immigration removal centres. So the charity I work for, Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, supports people held in two immigration removal centres at Gatwick Airport. And if you've gone on holiday, you may not even have noticed those buildings. So they're Category B prisons. They're built on the Category B prison model. But the people who are there aren't there because they've committed a crime. They haven't, become, they haven't come before a judge. There's no judicial oversight of the decision to detain. And they're held indefinitely. So keep in mind that they're there for bureaucratic reasons. It's an administrative convenience. And just know that the longest I know someone to have been detained is nine years. Half of people who are detained are later released back into the UK. So they've had needless family separation. And it has a terrible mental effect on people to be detained and live with that uncertainty. So when you're in prison, you count down the days to release. But when you're in detention, you count up the days to an uncertain future. And many people in detention suffer from post-traumatic stress, but often it's brought on by the fact of being detained in itself. So, our charity, Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, we have 60 volunteers who go into the centres and offer an unconditional hand of friendship. People offer acceptance. It's a really tough job. You can't change a situation for the person that you're visiting, but you walk alongside. And our visitors hear extraordinary stories of how people cope with the most difficult times, and the kind of resilience that people show is really, really inspiring. But people in detention tell our visitors that they want their stories heard. They feel invisible. And we had to think of a way to enable that to happen whilst also protecting their anonymity. So we came on the idea of the Canterbury Tales. We used it as a model. And every year we go on a long walk. And every evening on the walk, amazing writers like Jackie and like Patrick share stories of people that they've met who've experienced detention. So, in 2016, uh, Jackie read The Smuggled Person's Tale for us. And on our walk this year that starts next weekend, Patrick's going to be reading um, The Embroiderer's Tale in Waltham Abbey on the 8th of July. So, 
I'm going to, to leave the stage now and, and let Patrick read his tale. But while you're listening, I want you to bear in mind that there are 30,000 people in detention in the UK every year held in 11 immigration removal centres. And he's going to tell the story of someone who he met. It's their real tale. Thank you. Hello. Um, thank you, Anna. It's, it's such a, a, a treat to be here um, because I'm only a novelist. And I'm always painfully aware of how hugely disciplined poets are um, technically compared to mere prose writers. And so typically my story is too long because I don't have a poet's concision. So I'm going to read the front of it and the back of it, but I, I hope it will make sense. The Embroiderer's Tale. And yes... So I know this is not correct English grammar. I know not to begin every sentence with and yes, but they are such good words. And, promising there will be more, yes, a smile in word form, quite different from its equivalent in Farsi, lifting the corners of the mouth, a handshake, a nod, an arm swept open in hospitality. And yes. So please humour me. After Italy, which I might tell you about later, I find I reach for the good words, even when they don't make perfect sense. England is another good word I am coming to see, like cake and walk. Since I left home, I have learnt several things beside English. I have learnt that hospitality offered by strangers is a thing beyond the majesty of palaces. I have learnt that dogs can be friends. And I have come to see that to have spotless hands is a luxury above feasting. And yes, I am Iranian from Tehran. My father and grandfather and great-grandfather were tailors. Iranian men, as I'm sure you've noticed if you pay close attention to the news, dress extremely conservatively. But they have a weakness for a well-chosen cloth and a crisply turned hem. I was trained as a tailor too, we had so much work that my father ran one workshop and I ran a second from not long after I left school. I was young to be in charge of people, but I was confident and had their respect because I was a good tailor. I am a good tailor. Hand me a bolt of winter-weight wool or a flash of summer-weight silk and my fingers can immediately tell how best to cut it how best to make it hang from the shoulders, what thread to use with it, what buttons. To my eyes, most Englishmen dress like overgrown children, which is a pity, all colour but no shape. <laughs> I was a good boy, dutiful. I went to mosque to say my prayers, honoured the prophet, praise his holy name, and I pleased my father and mother. My mother was pious, and I did nothing to upset her. I read no books other than school books, avoided the internet, listened only to the singers she approved, and never went to the cinema. My one indulgence, which she encouraged me in because I think she secretly liked the sight of fit men's legs, even when only glimpsed from behind her shador, was football. I had clever feet, as accurate with a ball as my fingers were with a needle, and played often. And yes, then I met Mariam. 
I'd be lying if I didn't admit that there have been many times since when I wished I had never met her. I would still be in Tehran with my family, probably married and a father by now, because my mother and aunts were already starting to plan and plot which girl would best suit me. But thanks to what Mariam started, I have come to see that there is a reason for things. Timothy, the man I live with now, has a framed postcard above his downstairs loo which says, You came not to this place by accident. She was an Armenian. I could tell that from her surname even before she arrived for work. But I am not prejudiced like my mother. I am a craftsman and respect skill. I set her the usual test to unpick a seam and re-sew it along a line marked with chalk. She did this swiftly and neatly. I could hardly see the stitches. What else can you offer us? I asked. She looked at me solemnly and said, I can do invisible mending. Show me, I said. So she said, tear something, please. I tore a hole in the fabric she had just sewn, a jagged hole like you get on barbed wire, and she took out a reel of translucent thread and a needle from her own very neat little sewing kit, and in ten minutes it was hard to tell the hole had been there. And yes, I hired her. She was a good worker, and it was interesting because the other women who worked for me, all Muslim, all veiled, were far noisier than her, always chatting and gossiping and complaining as they worked, as though their veils were thick walls behind which they could say whatever they liked. But Mariam, sitting beside them, was... What's the word? There's a lovely English word, like the softest virgin wool. Demure. She was demure, eyes downcast, quiet, just sometimes smiling to herself at the other women's stories as she stitched. When her first payday came, I praised her work and asked if she was enjoying the job, and she ducked her head and said, Yes, thank you, yes. But she looked at me briefly, with these eyes that were green, like new green gauges, not the cow brown of everyone in my family. And yes, when her next payday came, she lingered behind the others to be last in the queue, and as she took her pay packet, she said her uncle, who she lived with because she was an orphan, would like me to come to supper, to thank me for employing her. So I went. I told my mother I was playing football, and I told my football friends I had a family party, and I went. Her uncle lived in an old house with a courtyard and blue-tiled fountain and lemon trees. It was a special day for them, to celebrate Easter. And yes, as we ate, and they explained, and Mariam told me stories... I fell in love with her, as easily as pulling on a glove. She was relaxed, not like at work, because she was with her family, and she smiled a lot, and her smile was peach-sweet and ticklish, so that I had to make an effort to look at anyone else in the room. As the meal reached the stage with sweetmeats, I realized more people had arrived. The uncle had a secret church. And these weren't born Christians like Mariam, but secret ones from Muslim families. They were what my mother called apostates. Will you join us? Mariam asked. At midnight, it will be Easter. She smiled and said, there'll be special cakes. 
And yes, I saw how much she trusted me because one word from me and these men and women would have been arrested. So I stayed for the service in the church, which was in a sort of cellar in the oldest part of a house where candles lit the vaulted ceiling, and it was beautiful, perhaps especially because it was hidden, like a beautiful woman under her shador. As Marion saw me to the door afterwards, she kissed me swiftly on the cheek and said, Happy Easter, and God bless you. The kiss the hint of her perfume, and the strangeness of hearing myself say, Happy Easter, back, left me feeling so dizzy that I drove home without remembering what to say in answer to my mother's questions, and my vague replies probably made her suspicious. And yes, I went back. Of course I did. My other life, my business, going to Friday prayers with my father, playing football with my friends, became like a fabric left too long in the sun. Mariam admitted she loved me, but said I would have to become a Christian for us to marry. It hadn't even occurred to me I could do either of these, so I was baptized in her uncle's secret church. She kissed me on the lips this time and gave me a Bible of my own. And although we could only be ourselves at her uncle's house, our murmured exchanges over her sewing at work were now charged like a woman's eyes when the rest of her face is covered. I began to dream of how we could move to Lebanon, perhaps, to be together, or to Egypt. Crazy dreams, I see now, but I was in love, and lovers are slightly mad. And yes, it all went wrong as rapidly as a bolt of silk sliding off a table when you forget to weigh it down. I was playing football with my cousins and some friends. It was a warm evening, and I was doing well. I'd scored three goals. The pitch floodlights made the city around us disappear, made the pitch feel like a stage where nothing could be hidden. None of my friends knew about Mariam and me. It was too dangerous. I kept it next to my heart, like the little silver crucifix she gave me. Suddenly, the little boy from next door was there, outside on the pitch, on his bike. He lives on that bike, running errands, spreading gossip. Hey, Rustam, he shouted out for everyone to hear. He was grinning. For a moment, I grinned back. Your mother has gone crazy and called the police. She found a Bible under your pillow. Everyone stopped playing. One of my cousins cursed the kid, but my best friend, Parvaz, knew at once that it was serious. You can't stay here, he said quietly. They'll know you're here. So I ran, and I drove to Mariam's uncle's house. I don't know how, but they had already heard. Mariam wasn't there. There was no time to wait. Her uncle gave me a fleece in case I was cold later, and some long trousers, and bundled me into a car for the border. I had my ID card, but no passport and no money. I was well off. If I'd been able to go to a bank, I'd have had money, but I was in sports clothes and had nothing. Her uncle said he was paying and not to worry. God will provide, he said. He had paid an agent, he said. Then he pressed a bag of food and drink in my arms and an envelope with euros in it. I had never traveled. I didn't know if it was a little money or a great deal. The driver wouldn't talk. He said it was safer that way, so we learnt nothing about each other. He just drove and played music. Drove and drove. 
At some point late at night, he turned off the main road, then onto a track and drove on with his, with his lights off using the moonlight, which scared me. But he said it was safest as we were near the border. Suddenly, he stopped in the dark to check his phone. He read a text and flashed his headlights just once. Nearby, some more lights flashed. We got out. In the moonlight, I saw it was a lorry under the trees. Welcome to Turkey, the man said. He told me to piss against a tree because it was a long journey, then helped me climb into the back by shining his torch. It was all crates of fruit. Oranges and tomatoes, I think. The scent was strong. And in the middle, a little mattress. I sat on the mattress, and he pushed the crates so I was hidden. Then we drove. I'm now going to skip that he has a, a terrible journey, and he is detained in Italy for a long time in very, very harsh conditions. But then he is moved on. I lost track of time because of the darkness. Uh, my phone battery was dead, so I had no light. Once again, we were on a boat. This time, I wasn't sick. Maybe I was empty. We arrived somewhere, and the lorry started up again. I was sure we would be checked. I was sure I would soon hear shouts and splintering wood. But no, we just drove for maybe two hours. Then we stopped at last, and there was noise in the lorry, and I could hear packing cases being ripped open at last, people talking in their languages. Hemel Hempstead, a man was saying quite angrily, Hemel Hempstead, England, go, go now. That's what he said to me when it was my turn to be let out. Go, hurry. But my legs were so cramped I could barely move, and he had to help me down to the ground before he drove quickly away. We were in a car park. In a town, it was night, streetlights in the distance, and a big road. I found myself on a normal street with takeaways and shops. It was busy with traffic and people, so I could disappear like a thread in thick felt. I tried not to stare at everything. I was worried I must smell bad and look wild. I heard a man and woman speaking Farsi. And yes, it was so surprising, I smiled, although they were arguing. And he saw and broke off to say, hello, my friend. Hello, I said. The woman looked suspicious and told him, we'll be late. But he looked kindly at me and said, you've just arrived, haven't you? Yes, I said. Do you have friends here, he asked. Family? No, I told him. So he wrote down his number, although the woman was clucking now like an angry hen. Ring me, he said. Arsham, you have one friend here now. I tucked his card with my money in my sock and tried to buy some food, but they wouldn't take my money as it was euros. And then there was a policewoman beside me holding my elbow. Every traveler here, every refugee has their own story as different as they are. The trouble is that all the stories become the same in the same way because they all, sooner or later, narrow down to a lorry, a box, a cell. They said it wasn't prison. When they finally found me someone who could speak Farsi, she explained it was a detention center for people like me with no one to vouch for us. I explained to her. I left nothing out 
apart from the fingerprints in Italy because I was scared of being sent all the way back there and about Arsham because I kept thinking of his wife and how impatient she looked as he gave me his number. He looked kind, but she was dressed like my mother. I knew she would think me an apostate. But they kept asking, who can you ring? Who do you know? The detention center near a big airport was nicer, I think, than a prison. There were plenty of meals, and the beds weren't uncomfortable. But it felt like prison because we couldn't leave, and because the women and men were kept in different parts, like in a mosque. There were good things there. I could play football every day in the yard like a cage, which helps when you all speak different languages. And I could go to a chapel and be as Christian as I liked. And I started to learn English properly every day. But there were bad things too. The boredom, the feeling idle, and the violence. There were men there who were leaving the country because they had done bad things, so it didn't feel safe. And football or supper time could turn into a fight. I had dreams that woke me up sweating and shouting so that people shouted back or thumped on the door. I found it hard not to cry, especially in the chapel where I went not just for God, but because it was quiet and empty. When I started to cry, I found it hard to stop. So finally I said, yes, okay, yes, I have a friend called Arsham I can ring. So they gave me a phone and said, ring him. And I took the paper with his number and I prayed in my head. And when he answered, I laughed and laughed because I was so happy it wasn't his angry wife. And yes, he knew at once who I was and very calmly, like a wise mullah, said, let me speak to them. He was very good. And so was Shide, his wife, even though she didn't want me there. Maybe she was especially good because she didn't want me there. I slept in their spare room for eight whole weeks. I tried to give them all my money, but Arsham only took it to turn it into pounds for me. They fed me. They took me to the library so I could read and have more English lessons from a lady like a grandmother who was not paid but said she did it for love. And they made sure I did not forget the days when I had to go a long way on the train and bus to sign the form for the police and answer questions I was beginning to understand. And kindest of all, because they were both Muslims, they took me to the door of the local church. In church, I made friends, especially Timothy, who vouched for me when I was taken back to the detention center when I forgot to sign in one week because I was ill and crying in my room. And yes, Timothy took me in and gave me his spare room and said I could live there free of charge while he helped me claim asylum. He has helped in so many ways. He realized I needed to work, although I am not allowed to earn money. So he gave me his dead wife's sewing machine, and I started mending and altering clothes for charity and helping mend vestments in the church. One day, he saw me working on an altar frontal, a very old one where the pattern had been eaten by moths and needed a repair. I was puzzling over it because it was not the sort of sewing I knew how to do. He taught me two new words on the spot and wrote them down for me on a little pad that we use, tapestry and embroidery.
Embroidery can also mean making up stories or making stories better, which I like very much. He showed me pictures on the internet. When I liked a tapestry, like a painting, but all in silk, he said, oh, we can go and see that easily. And he took me to the palace at Hampton Court and explained its history, most of which I didn't understand, but he told me anyway because his wife is dead and he needs to talk and tell stories. The tapestries there were so big, with figures bigger than life-size, and so very beautiful, I made him laugh because he tried to show me the rest of the palace and the gardens, which are beautiful and strange, but I kept asking when we could see the tapestries again. Would you like to learn? He asked. Men can learn as well as women. So I said, yes, yes, please, and he signed me up for a course at the Royal School of Needlework. We learn high up in the attics of the palace. And yes, I am usually the only man here, but I don't mind because the ladies are very kind and tell me I have a gift like I did for football. If the detention center was a kind of hell, the needlework school is a kind of heaven. And not just because it's up in the clouds. The rooms are all painted white, so the rainbow walls of glass drawers where you can see all the colored wools and silks waiting are all the brighter. It is quiet because we concentrate so hard as we sow tiny flowers and leaves and birds. And it is calm, like the calmest summer's day with no wind and oh, so clean because we are encouraged to wash our hands many times a day to keep the fabric unmarked. I made a red rose for my first exercise, using more reds than I can hold in my mind's eye, and I thought it was full of mistakes, but all the ladies gathered around when I finished and made sounds like doves in a warm courtyard. They want me to stay. They want me to do exams so that I can teach, and yes, they want me to tell them my story, but I only tell small parts, here and there, because it makes me too sad. The sadness is bad. Timothy took me to see a doctor about it because some days it was like a heavy cloud pressing down on the bed and stopping me getting up. And I was given pills and they help a bit, but they don't stop the bad dreams and memories of the trucks, of the forest, of Italy. So Timothy made me choose a dog in a place like a detention center for dogs. A terrible place, full of sadness and wild barking. Tina is small and very bristly and brown, with eyes the color of caramel. He says she is a mongrel, but I think that sounds ugly, so I just call her Tina. He says she is ours, but I know she is really mine, because I am to walk her and feed her and brush her. She seems to have chosen me, he says, because she sleeps outside my room, very close to the door. And if I wake with a sad cloud over me, she knows and pushes and licks my toes and fingers and ears until I get up to walk her. She is better than a pill. And yes, I hold her close, although we were told never to touch dogs at home. And she makes me better. She makes me feel now rather than then. Timothy says I can ring my mother to tell her I am all right, and I nearly have a few times. But then I remember that she called the police when she found my Bible. He asks if I want to ring Mariam, 
if I miss her badly, and yes, I nearly do, but Mariam seems so far away now, like a tiny figure in a picture on a wall in a big gilt frame. Sometimes I think Mariam was like an angel, mysteriously taking jobs around Tehran to make Muslim boys love her and become Christian. I think she will be working somewhere else now, shyly saying thank you to a boy who can't stop looking at her in the hope of catching her eye. Instead, I try to be like Tina and think only of now and tomorrow, my next embroidery, our next walk by the Thames. I wash my hands whenever I can. Timothy has Pear's soap, which is brown and smells of spices and leather. The soap at the needlework school smells of lavender. I sniff my fingers and smell only soap. If I look straight ahead or down at Tina's caramel eyes or closely at the blue and purple stitches beneath my fingers, life is good. And, yes. Thank you. It was wonderful, wasn't it? Extraordinary, really wonderful story. I got so attached <laughs> to, to that character. He was fantastic. Um, yes, I kind of don't want to read mine now because I just feel, you know, like when you're completely absorbed in listening and you suddenly have to get up and be on stage. It's a bit of a fright, really. I was completely absorbed. And it, and it was wonderful to, to be back here again. I actually slept the night on this stage, just the... <laughs> Had a wee sleeping bag, you know, t- turned around. <laughs> Somebody appeared in the middle of the night with a glass of water for me. <laughs> It'd be quite possible to do that, wouldn't it? I often think, you know, when you're doing poetry readings, that, um, that yeah, yeah, doing a poetry lock-in would be <laughs> a whole different kind of experience. <laughs> so I'm going to um, read, read my, my story, which is called The, the Smuggler's Tale. And... Um, I'll set off with it and see how far I get. Because I want to leave a little bit of time for us to, to talk about the stories and questions and so on. So I might just read about ten minutes and then, and then stop. The Smuggler's Tale. And he travelled some distance before he arrived at the house. He'd come all the way from the seventh area... He'd come from the Hazara people, Afghanistan. He'd had a bad time in Turkey, had caught a boat to Greece, crossed the border to Italy, spent months in Rome. He'd slept under bridges, in train stations, under berths of trains in the backs of lorries, Austria, France, Cali. Christmas 2009, cold, very cold, big snow. The road was near where they called the jungle, he travelled for seven years and crossed countless borders. He'd taken on different names and had often said he was from Pakistan. You could measure the distance and the look that crossed his face as he crossed this threshold into her house. 
Moments before, he'd been lost. The street had two houses with the same number at opposite ends. He'd been down the other end. It was nothing to him compared to all his journeying, but still, when he first arrived with his story in his rucksack, he was out of breath. He was sweating a little. Tiny beads formed across his forehead. His eyes first searched hers for kindness. It was the thing he always looked for. He could tell right away if people were kind or not. She opened the front door. It was a simple enough thing for her to open the front door to her home, but to him, it was quite something. Over these years of travelling, he'd not often been invited into many homes, detention rooms, prison cells, hostels, on the floor of various churches, yes, but he'd not been invited into people's houses. He stood in the hall as she went to make a pot of tea. He stood there with Anna, who was already there when he got there, who was the only person in the world who knew what he carried in his bag. Both he and Anna stood quietly, patiently in the hall, waiting. Only this time the waiting was nice waiting. This waiting was for something quite simple, a cup of tea. When she finished making the pot of tea, she walked from the kitchen to the hall with two steaming mugs in her hands. She was surprised to find them still there, a little embarrassed. Make yourself at home, please, come on in, she said, rushing. She'd expected that they would just go into the living room and sit down, but they'd waited to be polite, as if they'd both learnt not to make any assumptions about anything or take anything for granted. It made her pause in her own hall and think of all the things she took for granted, the list was already starting to grow in her head. And he sat down in the small living room and he looked around with some excited, some excitement. Here he was, G. He was in a house in Charlton, Manchester, England, the UK. He had made it to the UK. He was safe, he thought, and so was his story. He had it in his green rucksack. He had smuggled it in. The woman was ready to take it. He sat down to get it out of his bag confidently. He was shocked to find it wasn't there. He emptied everything out in a mild panic. It'd been there when he'd been on the bus. He'd checked. He'd pulled everything out. Half a sandwich, a pen, some official papers. But his story had gone. His eyes darted from side to side. He started to sweat a little more. Must have fallen out, he said, like my phone the time I was hanging onto the lorry when the rose hurtled past with some terrible speed. I heard my phone splinter and crash, and I heard something run over it. It had everything in it, and then it was gone. He had lost his country, his children, his wife, his farm. The days when he used to farm wheat in Afghanistan were over. It was a strange thing. He'd lost all the big things there were to lose in life. He'd witnessed the death of many friends. One friend had been shot. Another had fallen from the underbelly of the lorry. You didn't have a chance when travelling at that speed. His friend had just lost his grip and the road took him. Another had disappeared. He had no idea where his mother or father were. He had no way of contacting them. He'd lost everything there was to lose. And so it was the small things that got to him that made him nearly tip over, that made him flip. The mobile phone, the photograph, the small key. One journey had blended with the other. Once he tried to smuggle himself across a border under the belly of the lorry and he, had, he hadn't made it and he'd been arrested. It was a strange thing that time. He'd gone to the bathroom in the police station and had not recognised his own face. He was another man in the mirror. The suit covered everything, his face, his hands, black, totally black. 
It made him gasp. It startled him, his own strange reflection. There was already something of himself that he did not recognise because parts seemed to be falling off. Perhaps they were left on the road too. He laughed out loud, himself in the mirror. It was a shock. And he felt shy to be so filthy. When he came out of the toilet, they let him have a shower. They said, don't worry, everyone that comes here from under the lorries are that colour. And they gave him clean clothes. He hadn't expected that. Along the way, sometimes on life's strange and hard journey, small acts of kindness took his breath away and made his chest hurt, his eyes regularly filled with gratitude, shining and dark. When he came to her house, Jay's, and she opened her door, Jay, and her face was all smiles, he thought he still had it in his bag. The story was in his bag, he could have sworn it. He couldn't believe what happened after all the miles and the countries and the crossings, all the borders and the highlands, all the smuggled nights and hidden mornings of hunger, thirst and fear, that now it should suddenly be lost. They sat quietly in the room with all the nice things and they waited all three. It was as if they all shared the same breath. Time slowed right down. Time passed in an easy way for him. It was neither the fraught waiting time of detention or the terrifying waiting time of clinging onto a lorry's low-slung belly. It was waiting like a tree might wait for blossom. And it was then that he heard something under the room that all three were sat in, a kind of beating noise. The house, her house, was over a 100 years old, she'd said earlier. Under this room was a cellar. It had no natural daylight, Jay said. He got up from the living room. He heard himself saying, is it okay? And Jay nodded, though for the first time she looked uncertain. Alone, he crept down the steep stone steps and wove his way through piles of empty suitcases and brimming full plastic bags, old paint pots and brushes, step ladders, boxes of books and papers. And right in the corner, huddled under the fuse box, was his story. He'd no idea how it got there. He picked it up. It was an injured bird, its heart beating like its wings used to beat. He held it gently and cooed to it, stroking the feathers in the same direction. He didn't want to frighten it. He was full of wonder. How did you get out of my bag and change into a bird? He asked his story. He was shaking, but it wasn't the same shaking that he'd felt in the prison or in the detention or in the back of the police car, or hidden under the sleeping berth of a train, or holding onto the lorry's underbelly, or locked in the boot of a car to make a getaway. Of all the shaking he had done in his life, this shaking was very different. He found to his complete surprise that he was trembling with joy. I will stop there. I'm like two pages into the story, but I'll stop so we can talk. Thank you very much. so much thank you your tale is is so so beautiful and, and very hopeful and everyone you have to buy the book read what happens um to the story after that because it's really quite extraordinary and 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 really much more full of hope really than than almost any of the other stories and really your story kind of holds so much 
um, that you've been given something really that's like a treasure. Mm. Can, you, can you just tell us a bit about what it was like going through the process of collaborating? Yes, sure. sure. Um, it, is a, it, it does feel like a great, a great honour when somebody tells you their story, particularly such a traumatic story as G told me. Um, but on the day that he arrived at my house, it was a sunny day in Manchester, and he was feeling very joyful and excited and happy just to be coming to my house. And so I really wanted to capture that joy. Um, and he almost didn't want to go through the burden of having to tell his story again and again. He, he kept getting distracted and just uh, looking around. And, and he, he, he just didn't want to have to go, a bit like your, your character, the embroiderer, he didn't want to have to kind of go into it again because there's a great weight in a sad story. And so I wanted to try and um, capture the, the idea that his story was lost somehow um, and, 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 and there was already some transformation going on um, because sometimes when people have very traumatic events happen to them in their lives, and you'll know this yourselves if you've had any, it's almost as if something has to happen for you to transform and change out of that kind of quite bad place and into something else. And so, and so that's what gave me the, 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 the idea. And, um, and I, I, I like kind of putting Anna in the story as well. Anna appears in the story, and she's in it at the end as well, because she arrived at the house too, and it was true that they both stood in the hall. Um, and I just thought they'd go into my living room. I couldn't believe it. They stood there. Like, whilst I was waking. Uh, so, so I, I quite like the, the putting myself and Anna in the story too, because there was a real truth to it. But it's a huge responsibility to take a, to take a story and to try and do it justice, but also to transform it so as it doesn't become like a diary or a journal entry or it doesn't become so clogged with details and minutiae of details that a reader, the reader can't be transported into the world of the story. Mm. And how, how did it affect you? Oh, hugely. Well, as Jackie says, it, it's a tremendous honour to have been asked to, to do this anyway. But then when someone tells you their story and the story is so painful, um, a part of you like a journalist feels, I must just tell the truth. Mm. But the novelist part of me was thinking, how can I improve this? How can I embroider it? Um, and the thing that really struck me, and I read some of the other refugee tales as well, is that they do, it's of the nature of, of the refugee story, of the asylum seeker story, to flatten out the human detail. Because mm. as I said in that extract, that, that sooner or later it all narrows down to the same, same thing. hard mm -hmm. little experiences. And what I wanted to do was to emphasise that kind of hourglass shape, that you have a full human life that's been reduced, mm -hmm. and then with luck, thanks to you and your colleagues, can open out again. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got the, the, the journey in the middle, but the journey is actually devoid of, of, of detail, in a way. Mm -hmm. And all, all the detail is, is at the other, other mm -hmm. sides. Um, and you use in your story, I loved how you used the, the metaphor of embroidery and stitching all the way right through mm. the story. You used that like, like a thread. I mean, it is a thread that runs through Almost the story. Like it was like poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, was a, it was a kind of really lovely motif to have that running through. Did that just come accident. to you or did, or did well, he no, speak it, like it, that? It was a happy accident that he was an embroiderer, a tailor turned embroiderer, and that um, I am a very, very bad cross stitcher. Um, so, so I, I was completely... Are you cross when you stitch? <laughs> I, I, I have a, an ongoing project, which is to make um, 
tapestry covers for a set of six old dining chairs, and it's yeah. taken me about 20 years. I oh, really? Three of them. Oh, but I good think anyone who does cross-stitch will share my pain. Yeah. We all have these things yeah. under the sofa that we bring out, and it's really bad if you watch television with subtitles because you can't stitch. Yeah. <laughs> But it gave us some common ground, and um, Anna brought us together in the Royal School of Needlework, which, as I described mm, it, is beautiful. a kind of heaven. Mm. It's up in the mm. attics of Hampton Court, and mm. it's white and light and clean mm. and wonderful. And it was very moving hearing this story of deep degradation um, in, mm. in, in a place that was so beautiful and so civilised mm. and, mm. and, and devoted entirely to decoration and restoration. Yeah. Um, and so it, the metaphor was really just handed to me on a plate. Mm, by, by uh, it's so, it's oh. so beautifully written, that story. Oh. So, because you, you just get such a, a sense and you, you actually feel genuine concern and, and worry for mm. him. And you, you just think of how people's lives literally turn on a pin. You know, mm. that something, one, one minute... You know, Something happens. Your mother finds a Bible under a pillow, and you know yeah, your whole life. Just, yeah. And it's 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 horrifying the idea that a mother could do that to mm. her son. And you don't make that much of it just at the end, at the beginning of the story, mm. and at the end of the story, you don't really make that much of it. But we feel it, you know, as mm. as, as as readers and listeners, we feel how could a mother do yeah. that to her son? Mm. You know, but it happens all the time, apparently. Um, mm. Religion. I'm very nervous about it because next weekend I have to read the story and he will be in the audience, which is, is going to be... Yeah, funny. I had that experience. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm nervous. <laughs> well, well, he was there when I read mine and I was felt similarly mm. nervous, mm. but he was really happy, wasn't he? he felt, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure well, you're... If you get it right, it's like a present. You're handing them back a present. You, you, and I think there is something deeply therapeutic about narrative. Mm. Um, you talk to any psychotherapist, the whole psychotherapeutic journey is about reshaping your editing your own narrative and making narrative work um, mm -hmm. and I, I hope that what this exercise can do for the for the asylum seeker is to What's give to humanise perspective mm. and humanise it well, well I, I think that was your idea wasn't it behind the yeah I mean the humanising is really important and it's transformative for the person that's sharing their story but the other dimension of the project is that we're then using the book as a tool mm. and taking it to parliamentarians and having conversations about detention um, in a way that kind of traditional lobbying groups can't. Right. We're sort of bringing the human kind of to human rights. And um, how does it feel being a writer, knowing that your book, that the book, the anthology that you're contributing to, has a very direct political line that we're trying to actually change legislation? I love it. It's like being a bomb maker. <laughs> you know, um, fiction doesn't often have the chance to be that that useful. So, um, yeah. I love it. I love it too. So, somebody that was in the audience last night, like like Parami mentioned, because uh, my my mum used to, used to say things like, "I'm not tired, tired, but I'm tired," uh, which I which I thought of as the Glasgow double. You know, when you, I'm not hungry, hungry, but I'm hungry. So, so somewhere between these two hungries or two tired, you get precisely the definition. And this woman asked this question last night, and she said to me, "You're not political, political, but you're political," <laughs> which is just about the best thing anyone's ever said to me in an audience. But but um, but I think that when we write stories like 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 this, um. As writers, we we get given a gift. You know, we're giving a gift, hopefully, back mm. to the person and to and to the, and to people um, who read them because they're because people are, are invisible and faceless and without families and without identities, without yeah. texture, without 
you know, and we we just, as a society, lump refugees, detainees, immigrants all yes. together under one, and you, you don't get people's stories, which is why the Windrush um, scandal was so shocking to, to the whole country and shamed the entire nation, because here are people that were all being treated in a certain way that were faceless, nameless, until we suddenly got their stories, and the same with the Grenfell fire. And so it really is a writer's responsibility, I think, more than anything, to bring stories to people it, with all their texture, complexity and detail that we don't necessarily get to hear mm -hmm. in the news, because as soon as we hear stories in a real way, we can properly empathise, and as soon as we properly empathise, then surely we want to do something. And no. bad, bad policy is only ever possible because you've dehumanised the people. Exactly, on, on, on in the first place. In yeah. the first place, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And bang to rights. I mean, if you can write bang to rights, do you get my wee pun? No? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, yeah, but bang to rights, because if you can write or you try to write, then it's just humbling, just trying to... Mm -hmm. you, you just think every, everything like this that you do, you kind of think to yourself... Am I going to be up to the job of this? You know, am I going to find a way of, of telling it that's going to to do something that, that, that people are going to enjoy as a story, but that is also going to open open out some sort of possible thing? And that's why reading all of the different stories and seeing all the different ways that each writer has approached it mm. is quite a, a fascinating thing in itself. I mean, mm. it's really, it's worth re reading the book um, for that alone. Never mind, the, never mind all the stories, just because every writer has approached it. You know, Ali Smith's story is wonderful, but she also includes in her story the actual details of being there and the forms and what he actually had in his bag. And it's that kind of fusion of what is real and what is fiction that is the fascination in these stories. Um, and the same with, with, I mean, with Chaucer and these Canterbury mm. Tales, because that's what we, we were fascinated in, with Chaucer, with how much, how much was actually real and how much was woven into what he'd observed. Mm. Thank you. I, I think we've got five minutes. Questions. Can we just have a couple of questions? Oh, this was audience? one. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for your readings and the discussion you've had. I guess I just wondered in respect of the practicalities of the work. Have each of you had the opportunity to spend more than one amount of time with the storytellers? Because the way you write about the story creates such sense of intimacy with their truth. I, I just wondered if you, did you have time over many cups of tea or was it really just one one telling? Well certainly in my case it was it was one telling, but it was a long telling. And Anna, Anna was sitting in on it, as I think she always does, and, and was quite surprised at how much came out. It was very interesting, because to start with, he really didn't, you know, he was concentrating on the, on the happy stuff. And, and the author thing was being uh, the would-be storyteller. I had to dig into the pain and get him to tell me more. And once he started, and I think he could see that I, was, I, I wasn't judging or anything, it, it was quite startling what came out. Um, in my case, I met him twice because I met him before. Yes. Um, before, mm. before he told me his story, and um, out, in, out and about, didn't I, in yes. uh, in Manchester? So I'd met him maybe maybe twice before, and then he came. But I didn't know his story, and then he came. Um, but it wasn't just one cup of tea. Several <laughs> <laughs> <It's laughs> pots. But also, pots and cakes, sandwiches. <laughs> it's, it's important to stress that the, 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 the subject of each story has the an editorial role. 
So they get to read a story in an mm. early draft and yes. comment and maybe change names. So that funny detail of Hemel Hempstead, um, uh, that, was, that was given to me because uh, I'd originally used a, a different place brilliant. name. And he wanted brilliant. to change them. I wonder why he chose Hemel Hempstead of all the places in England, but uh, I loved it. It's brilliant. <laughs> That's a gift. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's really, really funny. And, and, it's, and it's worth saying that, that every asylum seeker goes through multiple interviews with the Home Office during the process of claiming asylum. And at every point, they encounter disbelief. Um, and they're questioned multiple times on tiny details. So the type mm. of conversations that they're having uh, with Jackie and Patrick are incredible for them. Just to have someone who just lets them tell whatever they wish to bring to that meeting in their own way. Yeah. So it, it's something really marvellous to, to witness. Yes, yes. yes. It, it is yeah. therapeutic. It's also sort of laden with danger. Because if you've experienced trauma, reliving details can be a trigger for PTSD, yeah. which is why we only expose people to the process once they're out of detention, when they're in a safe space where we can support them. Mm. And we call them afterwards daily, then weekly, then monthly to check in that they're okay. There's quite a, a, a very rigid form of support mm. for people going through the process. Yeah.